Uh, I appreciate it if you caught this line uh, from the reading, God wields an empire to bless his children. And how true that was, wielding the entire Roman Empire, wielding the entire world to do whatever he deems necessary uh, to redeem us. And uh, first service, as we sang that last song, All Glory Be to Christ, I literally had this thought of thinking of the ball coming down at New Year's and uh, New York City, maybe 100,000 people there, most of whom are probably kind of drunk, right? Uh, reveling in that. And 100,000 people singing, All Glory Be to Christ. Uh, then the, the camera pans, you know, to other cities and other nations, and they're all joined together saying, All glory be to Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing? And I think that will be the case one day. It's exactly uh, how it will be one day. So looking forward to that. Until that day, uh, you and I just put one foot in front of the other, don't we? Uh, one day at a time in the Lord's strength. So I'm glad that you're here this morning, and I've been sharing some of the survey, the establishment survey, right? Uh, just a little quick thing I haven't shared with you before, because I think it's kind of interesting, and it's this. The men outscore the women. Uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but, you know, these are facts. You know, so what does that, that show you? That shows you that men are more spiritually mature than women. <laughs> Do you have another interpretation? Of that seems to be the case. Now, of course, this can't be true for several reasons. One, there's only a one percent difference. I mean, the way the graph it looks like a big difference. One percent. One percent is statistically meaningless. It means nothing. Second of all, everybody knows that women are more spiritually mature on average than men anyway. Uh, I mean, I, you know, as a man, I, I don't have a problem admitting that. Seems to be the case often, right? Uh, but, uh, and that's especially true in the case of Zechariah and Mary. And I don't know about you, but I've always been intrigued by their, their two stories. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah to announce that his uh, wife Elizabeth would bear a son in her old age. Uh, and it reads this. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, if you look just on the face of it, Zechariah's question doesn't seem that bad, right? If you were faced with the same Thing told to you that your wife would bear a son in her old age, you might say, how shall I know this because of these facts? Seems innocent enough, but what Gabriel saw and knew was it was based in unbelief. You did, you did not believe my words. Now, of course, the same angel, Gabriel, visited Mary and announced that she would give birth to a son, but not just any son. I mean, it was amazing enough to have John the Baptist come to the world, but this was going to be all the more amazing. One who will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So think about the similarities between the two. Both Zechariah and Mary were promised a son. 
Both were visited by the same angel Gabriel. Both were completely unable to, to bear a son in their own human strength. Both required a miraculous intervention, yet Mary's response was very different from Zechariah's. Pick it up at verse 34. And Mary, this is Luke chapter 1, by the way. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And by the way, that's all we get in regard to the virgin birth. That's all we're ever told, that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. We, we're, we can't handle a, 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 a more detailed expl, exp, explanation of that, so I love that phrase. Uh, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So again, you look on the surface, they seem to be similar. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? Mary says, how will this be? I really don't see much difference between the two. Uh, but this time, it's Elizabeth who gave us the state of Mary's heart. She said, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So from just their words, we would not conclude that there is a difference, uh, that Mary had faith, but Zechariah did not. And I think it's all the more surprising when you understand who these people were. I mean, you've got a young teenage girl, and you've got Zechariah, who has been a priest for decades. He's faithfully served as a priest, serving the Lord, knowing the scriptures, uh, doing all that he can do as a priest in all of his experience. Mary had almost none of that except what her family gave her, what her small town experience had provided for her. So given those two vastly different circumstances, how was it that Mary was able to express such great faith and Zechariah the priest did not believe God's words. I believe the answer is found in what we call the Magnificat, uh, starting in verse 46, and it's called the Magnificat because that is the Latin word for what Mary says, my soul, what? Magnifies the Lord. Latin word is Magnificat. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to start reading in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. If you were with us last year in our monthly discipleship groups that we used to call lead and is now called? Equip. Equip, right? Very good. We went through what is called, there's a book called Gospel Fluency. It's a, it's a discipleship uh, way of thinking. And the, the core to gospel fluency are these four questions. Who is God? What has he done? 
Who am I in light of what he has done? And how should I live in light of who I am? And we have found this to be a very powerful paradigm just for your Bible reading, for example. You could take a chapter of scripture and ask these four questions and get things from that chapter that you might uh, have missed. Now, that is not to say that that's going to work every single time uh, that you read a certain passage or a certain chapter, uh, but it's, it's a good way of approaching the Word of God. And as I read the Magnificat, I, I saw these four questions just kind of jump off the page. So we're going to use them as an outline uh, this morning as we look at Mary's words. So number one, who is God? And there are three main attributes of God that Mary lists here. He says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. So, so Mary says God is mighty, God is holy, and God is merciful. And I, the first thing I want you to know, notice here, is that Mary knew this. Did you see the significance of that? Uh, Mary already knew this to be true. And what, one of the things that proves is that she was discipled well in her young years. Uh, and understand as well, she's not reading words on a page, right? She's not reading something that somebody has given her, you know, some theological text or doctrinal truths that says, oh yes, by the way, God is mighty and holy and mercy. This is a, a worshipful prayer coming from her heart. These are things that she already knew. She believes these things. She is certain of these things. In fact, the reason that she was able to respond to the angel the way she did is because she already knew these things about God. You see the difference that makes? She already knew those things to be true. Gabriel knew that she was expressing uh, even those simple words, uh, how shall this be? Gabriel knew that was an attitude of faith. Elizabeth could tell it was an attitude of faith. That Mary had a rock-solid faith even before the angel Gabriel came and announced that to her. Now here's a question. Do you think God knew that Mary knew this before he sent the angel Gabriel? Absolutely the case that she already had faith before Gabriel came to her. So I want to look at these attributes of God, his power, his holiness, and his mercy. And I want to start with a quote from theologian Charles Hodge, who writes this. The holiness of God is not to be conceived of as one of attributes among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of God's consummate perfection and total glory. It is his infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power. It's a mouthful there. Read that last line. It is his infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power. And we understand as we read, especially the Old Testament, that when people experienced God's holiness, they often were responded in holy fear before the Lord. Let me read to you how the Israelites experienced God's holiness at Mount Sinai, reading from Exodus 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of a trumpet and the mountain smoking, this is God appearing on the mountain, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. That's them experiencing God's holiness. As Jesus was being led away to his crucifixion, he gave a very similar warning about the future and said this, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. 
And if you know your Bible, you recognize that's also very similar to what John recorded in his vision of the last days when the sixth seal was to be opened. Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. So everybody, right? All the most powerful people in all the world and the slave and the free hid themselves in caves and among the rock, rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne, the one who was ruling, and from the wrath of the land for, land for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Do you see what this looks like, the experience that they had, that anyone who had a full picture of God's holiness, they, they experienced absolute holy fear. So then if God's holiness elicits this kind of holy fear, my question is, why did Mary not react in the same way? And I think the answer is because Mary also knew that God was merciful. Which brings us to our second question. What has he done? Let me give you uh, much of the same text here, but I've highlighted it. And if you can see, the ones that are highlighted in blue represent for the most part, it's not a perfect uh, breakdown, God's mercy and those that are highlighted red are God's strength. For example, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary's talking about herself there. Uh, the, the servant there is her and, and his mercy has been extended to her. But then, then she goes on to say, he is mighty, he has done great things, he has shown strength, he has scattered the proud, he has brought down the mighty from the throne. But while he brings down the mighty, he's exalting those of humble estate. Do you see that the combination of power and mercy happening simultaneously? He has filled the hungry with good things. There is that tender mercy again, but what happens to the rich? He sends them away empty. That's his, that's his power and, and uh, wrath and justice at work. He has helped his servant Israel. He's reaching out in mercy continually to, to Israel for thousands of years. And then finally she ends with, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I want to talk specifically about that, that last phrase, verse 55. He spoke to our fathers. Here we have a reminder that our God is a God who speaks to his people. And the importance of this cannot possibly be overemphasized because there is no other religion that is like this. Take, for example, Mormons. We know that Joseph Smith claims to speak for God, but the so-called revelation that he gave to, to people that he received, allegedly, is utterly ridiculous and absolutely worthless. Mohammed is Islam's, claims to be anyway, Islam's prophet, but among a whole slew of problems with the Quran, God did not start revealing himself until 600 AD. So, so what, what's the likelihood that human history went by for thousands of years before, years before God spoke for the very first time? And of course, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses put together did not come along until a couple hundred years ago, which means that God was voiceless for thousands and thousands of years. Now you compare that to the Word of God. By comparison, God spoke to Adam immediately after he was created. He created man, and then he spoke to man. 
God spoke clearly to Abraham to call him out of a pagan land into the future promised land. Moses came onto the scene uh, almost 3,500 years ago to lay down for us the first five books of the Bible, and then that just continued on and on from there. Hebrews chapter 1, I love the, the summary verse at the very beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Did you see what he said? The, the, the writer of Hebrews there is summarizing what has happened all throughout the Old Testament, what the theologians call progressive revelation. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's revelation, it's God speaking, but it's progressive. It happens over time, which is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. Long ago, at many times, there's a, there's a progress there, and in many ways, God was speaking. God did not reveal himself or his purposes all at once. Rather, he revealed those things progressively over time. And think about how much God said to Abraham, but he didn't say everything, did he? How much he said to and through Moses, but he didn't say everything to and through Moses. God reveals to us exactly what we need, but not what. God reveals exactly what we need, but not what we necessarily want. And this should be a source of great encouragement to us because there's oftentimes that we ask questions like, you know, why did God do this? You know, you might be even reading your Bible and you say, wow, that's a hard text. I don't understand why God did this. You have a question that comes from your heart. Or why did God allow this evil? You see all the, the terrible things going on in the world. And you say, why would a good and powerful God allow those sorts of things? Which are fine questions in and of themselves. And you read the Psalms and the psalmist asks those same kinds of questions. But he doesn't tell us what we, uh, all there is to know, but he does tell us what we need to know. And I submit to you, there is tremendous encouragement in that. But then the second verse of Hebrews chapter 1 finishes this thought. So, so God is progressively revealing himself all throughout time from, from day one, start of creation. Now we read this. But in these last days, which is now 2,000 years ago, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So, so there's the, the power all, all given to him, through whom he also created the world. So now we have about 4,000 years of human history that went by before God spoke through his son in this way. Now, was God speaking through his son prior to the, the, the birth of Jesus? The answer is yes. Because we, we see Old Testament appearances of Jesus, but of course not in the same way that he appeared when he became God incarnate, God in the flesh. Uh, but long before that happened, Mary was already listening to the Word of God, receiving the Word of God, believing the Word of God, uh, uh, so that when the angel appeared to her, she was prepared. You see how the Lord had done that for her? And we see this even more specifically in the text itself. Verse 50, when Mary says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, she is literally quoting from the 103rd Psalm. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. You jump down to 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, quoting from Psalm 107. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. I want to uh, give you several important implications uh, from this fact of her quotations. 
First of all, it shows us that Mary memorized the Word of God. And of course, in her day, she didn't have a Bible. You know, there were scrolls, but they were rare, they were expensive, they were kept in the synagogue. So, so to learn the Word of God, you had to memorize the Word of God. And this proves to us that Mary memorized the Word of God. It also proves to us that Mary was discipled by her parents. Uh, she was a, a young gal. Uh, she was not a priest. She had not studied these things. So the only way she could have learned them was through the influence of her parents and of her Jewish community. They raised her so that she would know both the mighty power of God and the tender mercy of God. Third thing that Mary is doing here is she is modeling for us what it looks like to pray through the scriptures. Did you see what she was, she was doing here? Uh, this, this Magnificat is a prayer that literally poured out of her heart and soul, and she's praying the word of God. And uh, earlier this year, I introduced this practice to you through a book from Don Whitney called Praying the Bible. You might remember that. And uh, it, it's simple. You just you, you take a text and whatever you might be reading, whatever your devotional uh, is for that day, and, and you can pray through that scripture. And, and sometimes it, you know, like if you're in numbers, it's a little tough, you know, isn't it? Uh, to, to, to pray a heartfelt prayer through numbers. But for the most part, you can take almost any text, any passage, and, and at least one of those verses becomes a prayer for you. You're literally praying through the Word of God. And Mary was modeling that for us. But I think even more than that, everything she says here is based on God's revelation of Himself. Now, I, I showed you there the two direct quotations from the Old Testament from what they call the Scriptures. Uh, it wasn't the Old and New, what was it then? It was just called the Scriptures. Two direct quotations, but literally everything Mary said is from the Scriptures, from the Word of God. So Mary memorized the Scripture. She prayed through the Scripture because she was discipled by her parents. Many of you probably heard she was very young, right? Most scholars think 15 or 16 years of age, and you think back when you were 15 or 16, you know, if you were even saved at that time, what was the, the level of your faith? What was the, the level of your spiritual maturity? Matter of fact, I got saved at age 16, so I, I know I was a brand new believer and extremely, extremely immature. You think about uh, your kids who are about that age or that age, and you think, could, could they do it? Could I have done it? Uh, what level of spiritual maturity are they at at that point? Uh, but everything uh, she said was based on who God revealed himself to be and what he had done for his people. And, and that uh, all developed and led to her to the fact that she could own these truths for herself, but only because she was uh, spoon-fed, literally, uh, when she was young, spoon-fed these truths by her family and by her community, her Jewish community, which is essentially what we have, isn't it? We have, uh, we put children, are put into families and into this body of Christ, our Christian community. So my encouragement to you parents is, do not be afraid to spoon-feed the Word of God to your children. Do not be afraid to do that. In fact, feed them long before you they can even understand what you are feeding them. You see how important that is? For, for example, when, when your kids started eating solid food, and most moms especially remember that day, it's like, 
especially the first kid who transitions from, from uh, milk to solid food. It's an exciting day. Did you feed him chocolate pudding on that exciting day? I hope not. You're a bad parent. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you know, if you snuck it in, that's fine. Uh, but, but no, of course we did. We fed them good foods, natural foods, foods that were good for them. Peas and carrots and, and all those things that, you know, we would never eat that stuff, but uh, the kids are happy to eat it. Uh, but here's the thing. They didn't know what you were feeding them, nor did they know why you were feeding them this food. They just ate it. And the same is true with the Word of God. Feed them the Word of God, feed them while they're young, and feed them often. Even when they occasionally spit it out of their mouth, which children are prone to do with their food. As parents, you are literally raising little Marys and little Josephs. You never know what God is going to do in and through them. You never know what mantle God will lay upon their lives. And an amazing example of that, and I don't have time to get into it, but was at Cam and Laura Mangan's wedding in Texas last week. It was absolutely remarkable. Uh, again, I don't have time, but, uh, but I'll say a couple things. Uh, the service was absolutely remarkable, God-honoring in every possible way, but the environment was so. For example, uh, Cam and Laura were at this discipleship school, Ellerslie, in Colorado, so year or two, so they developed all these friendships there. Uh, now they're at Spurgeon College in Kansas City uh, that's heavy on, on mission and sacrifice for the Lord, so they've got all those great friendships there. Now uh, they're at the King's Kids in El Paso, Texas, which I've learned a great deal about the ministry and have a high, high appreciation for what they're doing. And then, of course, friends and family from all other places. All these people descended on El Paso for this wedding, so you've got this crazy amount of really spiritually mature believers all gathered together celebrating this special, special wedding. So literally, every time I have a conversation, it was a deep, powerful, a spiritual conversation. It happened again and again and again. And Ryan and I left that. We said, that was just a remarkable experience. Uh, and that happened uh, because those young people were being discipled. Uh, they were getting spoon-fed either from a young age or in their college years uh, the Word of God. And the result of all of this discipling and memorizing the Scriptures is that Mary's faith was made rock-solid. But we've got to understand this really, really important thing is that her faith did not come from within her, but it came, it was based on what she knew about the faithful one. In other words, we should never say about Mary or anybody, anybody like this, oh, her faith was so strong. Rather, her God was so big. Therefore, she had faith in that big God. Her God was so faithful and worthy of trust. Which is why I borrowed from the, the, the title of this message from uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And this is actually describing Sarah. She considered him faithful who had promised. Now, I find that absolutely fascinating because what we know about Sarah, would you say, boy, Sarah had a lot of faith, right? Of course not. What did she do when, uh, and I believe this was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, uh, when the angel Lord and, and two others appeared to Abraham and Sarah and said, you will bear a son. What did she do? She laughed. In other words, she, she scoffed. She mocked. 
she disbelieved. She believed. She had a complete absence of faith. Nevertheless, here we have reported in the Word of God, Hebrews 11, she considered him faithful who had promised. So something happened in between Sarah's mocking of what God was doing and her absolutely believing that God is the faithful one. And the same, tr same is true with Mary. Now, I've used this illustration before, but it, it bears repeating. For, for example, as you, and we all walked into the church this morning, and I saw some of you come in and, and milling around, and I didn't see a single one of you concerned about falling through the floor. True? Now, why not? Think about if you fell through the floor. We forget that, that it's kind of a high story. What's below us is a hard concrete floor. And if you actually fell through the floor, you're going to crash hard on that concrete floor. You're likely to injure yourself severely. And if you hit your head, you could actually die from that, that fall. Nevertheless, not a single one of you was concerned about the floor. You didn't give it a second thought. Why? Because the inherent strength of the floor was just something that you assumed as you came in the door, right? So in that sense, the floor is faithful, you see? The floor is trustworthy. Now, does the, the strength of the floor have anything at all to do with your personal faith? Hmm. Yes or no? No. No, absolutely not. All you're doing is recognizing the floor is strong. The floor is trustworthy. You're not saying, oh, look at me. Look how big I am. Look how good I am. Look how confident I am because the floor is so strong. That's nonsense. You, your, the, your, your faith is not faith in faith. It's not faith in your own self, but faith in the object that's outside of you, which is God, the faithful one. All we have to do is recognize his utter faithfulness, uh, and, uh, but, but, you know, like, like we take walking across the floor for granted. We, we don't even think about it for a second. That's the kind of faith that Mary had, and she arrived at this type of response because she knew God's character, she knew his faithfulness, she knew his word. So the strength of our faith is always related to the object of our faith. Is God 100% faithful? Yes. Then may we consider Him so and live accordingly. Which leads us to our third question. Who am I in light of who God is and what He has done? Who am I in light of those things? And first of all, let's answer how Mary responded to that. And she wrote this. For He has looked on the humblest state of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. What is happening here is, you know, I, I said to you, Mary is pouring out this uh, pure worship, this, this prayer, this uh, uh, based upon the scriptures coming from her heart, uh, this statement of worship. And this is an intensely personal part of this beautiful song because she's applying this to herself, right? He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, She's talking about herself, the, the humble estate of her who, uh, it, she understands God is faithful. She's, what is she? She's, she's just a young Jewish girl. She doesn't deserve this. She hasn't earned this. Uh, there's no possible way that she should have this happen to her, but, 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 he, but it does. God is merciful, therefore he looked on the humble estate of a servant. God is mighty, therefore he has done great things for me. 
You see, what she's doing is her perception of herself, she's asked, who am I in light of these things? Her perception of herself was fully rooted, completely founded upon who God is and what he has done. And she also wonderfully recognized the implications of that, that second line there, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And think about that. For 2,000 years, ever since this happened, every single generation all throughout the world has been calling her blessed because of her confidence in who God is and what he has done. Do you understand? This is her identity. This is the, the very essence of her being was rooted in who God is and what he has done. In those four questions, if you will. She was absolutely convinced and could be convinced she was pregnant with the Savior of the world to such a degree. She said, you know what? They're going to be talking about this for thousands of years. God was faithful in all that he did. Therefore, she saw herself in light of these truths. So last question, how do I live in light of these truths? And again, let's answer how Mary responded. And we see how she responded. It's not up there, so I'll just read it to you. Um, anyway, if you can get that back on, if not, no, no, no problem. Here's how she responded. The first line, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What was she doing there? Anyway, no word about it. Uh, pure faith, pure worship. My soul magnifies the Lord. Let me ask you this question. Do you have such faith in God's faithfulness that you never give it a second thought? Not me. I, I, I think I'm on the way toward that, but, but not me and not yet. Do you trust God as instinctively as you trust this floor? Again, not me, not yet. See, too often we talk about faith, and what we mean is faith in our faith, right? That, that is often, almost every time we talk about our faith, we mean faith in our faith instead of faith in God's faithfulness. And until we get to that point, and it's not going to happen until we die or until the Lord Jesus comes again, until that happens, we need to continually expose ourselves to his truth and remind ourselves of God's truth. Because if we trusted him like we trust this floor, do you understand? Nothing would be impossible for and I'm convinced that's what Jesus meant when he said, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. That's the kind of faith that he was talking about. It's a faith you wouldn't even give it a second thought. You just do it. You realize if we had that kind of faith, that obedience and submission to the Lord would be like, like breathing. It would literally be like walking across the floor. For 2,000 years, Christians all throughout the world have been rejoicing along with Mary in the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see him as completely worthy of our trust. Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? Father, what, what holiness what power, what mercy, 
all expressed and co-mingled, continuously, progressively revealed uh, all throughout human history and, and ha having its culmination, its exaltation in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, his perfect obedience, also his gruesome death, also his glorious and final resurrection, also his ascension into heaven, seated on the throne from which he will judge all peoples. Father, there's only one response to this. It's repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Again and again and again. Lord, give us strength to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.